So I want to start today with a question. And the question is, do you remember the movie Memento? It's not a serious question. You guys thought that might be serious. Um, if you do, um, you are old. That's the first thing. How are your 40s going, right? That's the first question. The movie came out 24 years ago. 24 years ago. And if you don't remember it, let me say first that I congratulate you on being one. That's awesome for you. Um, and second, that it's probably <coughs> worth your time. Memento was a bit of a sensation in the year 2000 when it came out um, because it did something interesting with its structure. It was this story about a man with short-term memory loss. He was on a quest for revenge. Of course, it turns out it's hard to get revenge if you can't remember what's going on. And in order to communicate this like, main character's experience of constantly waking up with no memory of what had just happened to him, the movie plays out backwards. And so the first scene that you see is the ending of the movie, but you don't know how you got there or why. And then the second scene starts a few minutes before the first scene, and it catches you up to where you were. And then the next scene does the, the same thing, and it catches us up to the second scene, and so on and so forth. It's a trip of a thing. But underneath this gimmick, there is an idea that's actually, I think, kind of interesting to consider more broadly. And the question is, can we ever really understand the path we're on before we know where it ultimately leads? Can we understand the path we're on before we know the ending? I bring this up today because we're beginning a series on the Gospel of John, which is going to be our focal book for this year. By the time we get to December, we're going to have spent some 11 or 12 Sundays reading through this account of Jesus' life. But instead of beginning today, you know, at the beginning, what we're going to do is we're going to take a kind of memento approach, and we're going to start towards the end. And our hope is that this strategy brings deeper resonance to what we're learning, and we also hope that it honors something that's unique, actually, about John's gospel, which is that more than any other account of Jesus's life, John's story, John's story of Jesus, wants us to see Jesus as the key to understanding his father. He wants us to see Jesus as the key to understanding his father. God is the goal of this gospel. God is the ending of the gospel. And not just in the sense that John like, wants us to learn more about him, but in this very specific sense that John believes deeply and profoundly that illuminating the way to God is what Jesus is here for. So, it leaves us with a question. How do we start a story that's not starting at the beginning? Well, like the movie Memento, what we're going to do is we're not literally going to read the book entirely backwards. Instead, what we're doing is we picked a point that separates like, the last act of the narrative from what came before. We're going to start our study there. And in this case, that division point can be found in chapter 13. When Jesus sits down with his, for his last meal with his closest friends, who he referred to as his disciples. After this dinner, after this last supper, Jesus is going to be arrested. And after he's arrested, he's going to be executed. And then three days after he's executed, he's going to rise from the dead. But the opening of this final chapter, this final sequence of events in the Jesus story, happens at dinner. And here's what John says. He says... Now before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
The devil had already decided that Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, would betray Jesus. And during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from supper, took off his outer robe, and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. And in an email this week, Paul McGrew, who's on our preaching team, called these verses immensely beautiful. And they are. So let's take a closer look here. <coughs> the key, I think, to understanding this scene is in that first verse. Right? It says that Jesus knew that his hour had come. And at this point in John's gospel, Jesus has spent three full years, longer than in any of the other three gospels, he spent three full years traveling through Israel, teaching and healing people and modeling the character of God for those who are following him. But in all that time that he's been going around trying to show God to people, it has been difficult, if not impossible, for people to see him as anything more than a great prophet. In the people's imagination, God has always been like, well, God, he's a part. He's this great force, he's this great advocate, maybe, who preserves the life of Israel, who's preserved the nation for centuries, and who also enforces heavenly justice, like in the world. Now this God, who's like far away, who's a force, who's an advocate, this God has laid out instructions in his law, which is given to the people, and he's unwavering in his execution of those instructions, of those covenants, they call them. And he's laid out these instructions, unwavering in execution. And yes, like in all of their time, the people have seen God's patience in their stories. They see other parts of God. They've also seen and experienced his forgiveness of them as a nation. But the issue here is nearness. And the nearness of God has always been complicated for them. God is not touchable, and he's not visible in the same ways that the gods of their neighbors are. His presence is dangerous, and he's sealed away from them in the smoke and in the fire of Exodus, or in the hidden recesses of the tabernacle, or in the Holy of Holies in the Jerusalem temple. God sees everything, and God can affect everything. This is the key thing. Woe to those who are unclean when they face him. I want you to hold on to that last part. Woe to those who are unclean when they face him. If the Israelites know nothing else about God, they know this thing. That sin is abominable in God's sight and that he cannot and he will not abide it in his presence. And so to flout your wickedness over and over in Israel's story is to invite your own destruction. Think of the joke that people sometimes still make when they hear a friend say something like boastful or, or blasphemous, right? Like, you better watch for lightning. Have you ever said that to somebody or heard somebody? Have you had somebody say that to you is the question. That lightning strike God is the God that Israel knows and they fear him. But Jesus' purpose is greater than the purpose of a prophet who comes to remind people to be rightly afraid, which is what prophets often do. Jesus' purpose is to reveal something about God 
that the old systems of reverence overlook. The trouble, however, is that the only way to do this, the only way to have this revelation, is for him to walk a path that is unavoidably going to make his friends afraid. And so, with the hour approaching, when he knows that he's going to have to leave them, when he knows that he's going to have to die, he does something pointedly and intentionally to change this dynamic that scares them in their relationship with God. Woe to those who are unclean when they face God. And so what does Jesus do? We pick up during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from supper, took off his outer robe and tied a towel around himself. And then he poured water into a basin began to wash the disciples' feet. It's like in this scene, the disciples are literally unclean, right? They are facing the one into whom God has poured all of himself, who is God in the flesh. But instead of punishing them for being unclean in his presence, he gets up from the table, he ties a towel around his waist, and he makes them clean. They don't understand what's happening here, right? Because the hour that is near has not yet come. And they don't understand because their focus is still on like this vision of following a rabbi around where they're trying to impress God enough to be worthy of his blessing. And they don't understand because Jesus is their master and he's not supposed to be their servant. But we can understand what's happening in the scene, right? Because we've already seen the ending of the story. And the ending reveals that the God Jesus reveals is a God who loves first. He recalibrates their expectations in such a way that cleanliness is a gift that he bestows to those who submit to being served by him. Cleanliness is a gift that he bestows to those who submit to being served by him. It is not a performance that we enact so that we can earn like a gold star from God. Now, of course, like gold stars are still all the disciples in this moment have the capacity to imagine. They love gold stars. We see this in their story over and over. And so when Jesus comes to his friend Peter to wash Peter's feet, we see this moment where Peter says to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Answer seems obvious. And Jesus says, you do not know now what I am doing, but later you will understand And Peter says to him, you will never wash my feet. And then Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. And then we have one of these awesome about faces from Peter where he's like, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Like if I have to get washed by you to get to share with you, then like wash all of me. And as always in the Gospels, like it's easy to laugh at Peter. He's frequently like the comic relief of the stories. Because he so desperately like wants to be good. That's his thing. He wants to be good so bad. But there's something beautiful, I think, under the surface here too, right? At first, Peter fears that this is a test. And he does his best to like pass the test, right? Like, my master shouldn't be treated as my servant. I see what you're doing here, so I'm going to refuse. But then when Jesus lays out the stakes of what's going on, that being served by God is necessary if you want to accept or if you want to be with God, then, of course, like what's notable is like, what does Peter inadvertently ask for? Right? He says, 
He says he wants to be clean all over. Like what happens here is the description of baptism, isn't it? He wants his whole body, his whole self to be made clean. Now, I think for many Christians, baptism is a choice that we make at the beginning of our faith journey as we, and, and we frame it as this matter of repentance. If you've been baptized, it's probably how it, like, you came to understand this, that you repent and then you're saved. We acknowledge that we're sinners and then we submit the rest of our lives, right, imperfectly, like inconsistently, but hopefully we submit the rest of our lives to, this, to the leadership of Jesus, whatever that means. And then we spend our life trying to figure out what that means. And all that stuff is true. But I think this scene adds another piece to the puzzle of baptism. Because here we see that being baptized is also about allowing Jesus to serve us. It's an allowance. It's an acknowledgement. And it's an acceptance of this like upside down God that we worship. Who desires our obedience like all gods do. But not because we fear his power. He desires our obedience because he wants us to trust his love for us. His willingness to serve us. He wants to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He wants to serve us so that we can learn from experience how beautiful a thing it is to be a servant. And this leads then to the last discovery that we can make in Paul's beautiful passage. Is that we don't need to be afraid for submitting ourselves to love over judgment. That it is a blessing. It's an actual blessing to serve. <coughs> Let's read the rest of, of the, the verse here. It says, After he had washed their feet and put on his robe and had reclined again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Very truly, I tell you, slaves are not greater than their masters, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. If you knew these things, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Now, fun trivia fact about the Gospel of John. This is the only commandment that Jesus gives to anybody in this particular Gospel. You ought to wash one another's feet. That's it. Just like the commandments in the Old Testament once passed down through Moses, right? This is a commandment that comes with a promise if you obey it. And the promise is that you are blessed if you do this. And I think most of us like do pretty well with the first part of all this. We understand the idea of instructions. And if you're showing up to church on a Sunday morning, then you've already made at least some amount of peace with the idea that if there is a God out there, that that God might have some expectations for you. You're likely here this morning on some level because you're curious about what those expectations might be and if you really want to commit to trying to meet them. And so it should come as no surprise, right, that like 20 minutes into a sermon, the pastor is going to stand up here and say, here's what God wants you to do. It's kind of what you're here to find out. And so I think we get commandments. We get the idea of orders. But what we struggle with is seeing a commandment as a blessing. So as we're moving towards the end here, let me tell you the end of the story. 
mementos tile, and then we'll go back to the beginning. All right, if you stick around for a few minutes after the service ends here in a few minutes, then you're going to see something like pretty amazing. And that is that in about 30 minutes, maybe 35, right, because it's wet outside, everything that we have done trying to make this space this morning feel like a church home is going to be undone. The band is going to disappear. Like these seats are going to disappear. These rugs are going to disappear. And in the gym, on the other side of that wall, TVs and rugs and toys and rainbow-colored room dividers, like 40 of them, are all going to get put away, and they're going to disappear. And the tables in the hallway are probably already gone. Actually, people generally like clean them up about halfway through the service. And the dishes that we use for communion over here are going to be cleaned. And they're going to be stored for the week. And all of this is going to happen, not because I do it, although I'm the only full-time employee of this church, or because a few leaders who were on the schedule today do it. It's all going to happen that quickly because dozens of people are going to do at least a little something to make it all happen. It happens every week. The same thing was true this morning before you got here, like Rob, Robert Olson, if you know him, was like the scheduled to pull the trailer. So he pulled the trailer up a little before 8 this morning, and then three or four of us helped to unload it. And then by 8.30, the musicians were all here setting things up. And then by 9, kids' volunteers were showing up. And then coffee was being brewed by 9.30. And then Roy set up the flags because Roy always sets up the flags. So thank Roy for the flags. And what I'm getting at is this, right? Sunday services are not the church. Right? People are the church. And the people who call revolution their church, who call revolution home, chip in together to serve not just you if you're a visitor, but also to serve each other so that the load of doing this whole thing can be shared. And the wild thing is that most of the time, at least, we do this pretty joyfully. But like I said, this is the end of the story, Right? So here's the chapter that came just before this one. In 2020, a pandemic descended on the entire world and church services like this one stopped happening, you remember. And before that pandemic, right, revolution existed. And we did our best to keep a tight schedule. Volunteers had shifts and they had roles, had responsibilities. But when the world stopped spinning three, four years ago, four years ago, when the world stopped spinning, a few of us began to realize that along with all the hardship that this was going to create, there was also an opportunity. What if, when all this stuff ends, we don't rush back? What if, instead of reminding everybody of all the stuff they used to do, of their obligations, we tried to strip <coughs> things so far down that only a few of us could manage most of the work? And then when church comes back, we invite people to come back, not because they have a job to do or because they used to have a job to do, but because they feel ready to come back. And what if we waited on each other to step back in because of love and a desire to be here on a Sunday instead of guilt or a sense of, well, this is what I always do. And this chapter before the current chapter didn't go perfectly and I mean it when I say we were never saints about all of this. I certainly wasn't. But here's the thing, right? When I look around 20 minutes from now and I see folks chipping in, when I see most of you chipping in, even if it's just to put your seat back on the rack in the corner, right? Here's what I think I am starting to see 
And if I'm honest with you, something I'm finally starting to trust about this church. And that is that serving can be love as well as work. That serving can be a blessing. If we step back and we look at this moment in John's gospel as a whole, what do we see? We see Jesus, like at crunch time in his story, making sure that his disciples experience the definition and the illustration of God's love that he's been here the whole time to try and share with them, that they feel it and experience it themselves. He wants to make sure that they get it before he leaves, that they don't have to be afraid of their uncleanness before God, that God is the one who will wash them and make them clean. He wants them to get and feel and understand that they don't need to be afraid to submit to God because submitting to God is a way to freedom, not a way to restriction. They don't need to feel burdened when they serve they don't need to be tallying up like all of their, their hours and like keeping a log of all the hard work because serving is a path to blessing. And he wants them to feel all of that, not just hear him talk about it, but experience it and feel it. And probably like all of that is far too much for them to understand. It certainly seems to be, as we read the next couple of chapters, they don't get it now any more than they got it when he did it years before. And honestly, it's probably still too much for us to understand. The trick of John's gospel is this. It is that the end of the gospel is what helps us make sense of the beginning. Because discovering that God washes those he loves, that he serves the people who submit to him, and that he blesses the people who follow his example is a thing that only really begins to be believable and makes sense when we see just how far God is actually willing to go for the people that he loves. Like grounding the bigger story of God in the intimate story of Jesus' relationship with his friends is actually what makes the whole thing tangible. And it's what makes it believable. It's the sweater? (laughs) I've gotten so much grief for the sweater today. Tell you what, you wear flannel every day for six years, and then the one day you don't, people will notice. I was getting animated about about all this. For me, anyway. Jesus grounds God's story. And here's the thing. Jesus is not just like a good man who sets a good example. He's not like just this guy who once lived on the earth and and like enacted this ideal so that we, thousands of years later, could like admire him and then like tiptoe our way towards living like he lived. What Jesus does, this is what you need to know today, and that's God's character in the world so that we might see and believe. Spoiler, when we get to John 20, that's what he writes. That's what he says the whole gospel is for, so that you might see and believe. What felt distant before, what's felt untouchable before has come near And what seems upside down is actually right side up. And the thing that you long for is already here. And then by living this out, Jesus encourages us, like in the deepest sense of what that word can mean, which is to give us courage. Jesus encourages us to take a chance on following God with our hearts first and not our heads. And clean the wounds of those who are hurting 
We can be encouraged to wash the feet of those who are dirty, to serve those who are used to being servants themselves. And if we can do that, if we can follow him, if we can experience and then follow in the example of Christ, then what we have the opportunity to do is to bring tangibility and touchability and humanity to the immeasurability of God's love for people. And this, all of this doesn't have to be an obligation to you because you owe it to him. It can be a joyful echo of something that you've personally experienced. So what I want to do right now is like at the end of things is of course to send you out with the mission. Like 20 minutes in, I tell you what you are supposed to do, and then at the end in the last two minutes I tell you, now go do it. But we're kind of doing today backwards. And so instead of sending you out with the mission, I want to ask a question, which is what has already been done for you? What has already been done for you? Because the thing is this, right? It's hard to echo with your life something that you can't remember happened. We're going to close today not with a commandment to follow, but instead a reminder to receive a blessing again that has long been offered to you. To remember that God has found you where you are, that God has loved you before you loved him back, and that God has already filled the basin, right? And he has soaked a towel, and he is waiting for the opportunity to serve you if you will just submit to letting him do it. And if you've never allowed Jesus to serve you before, right, maybe today is the day that you say, yes, I want to do that. Now, you might be somebody who prefers to like, skip to endings, right? I'm this way when I read a book or watch a movie. And if you're somebody who likes to skip to endings, then maybe like, you're just looking for the, the, like, what's promised at the far side of this thing, right? Which is like, I want to be more kind. And I want to be somebody that loves other people better. And I want to be happy to be a helper. It sounds like who I want to be. But here's the thing, right? You cannot fully share something that you have not fully received. You cannot skip to the ending here. So the question, the challenge is what might happen? Like what might actually happen to you if you let the God of the universe wash your feet? Like what would that do to you if you actually let that how deep might the rewiring of you go if you open that door? What could it awake? And if you're somebody who has done that before, if you're somebody who has trusted God in this way before, my question is, do you still remember it? Do you remember what it was like? Do you still see that there is a blessing behind all of the commandments, not just one time, but a blessing that's like available to you every day? It is a good thing to be disciplined. I know a lot of you, and a lot of you are super disciplined people, but it is not good to be disciplined at the expense of love. And so what if you took this moment today to re-experience what it means to be served by the one who should be your master? To be so perfectly and gently loved. I think that all too often, those of us who are Christians, especially if we've been Christians since Memento came out, which, like I said, was a very long time ago. I think it's all too often those of us who are Christians choose to starve ourselves of an affection that is endlessly re-offered to us. God loves us. And the key to living out our faith isn't fearful obedience. It's incarnation and memory. We become 
what we received and we share what we remember. So today, may we first allow ourselves to be served and then tomorrow, may we serve others with joy, right? Because our memory of being served is fresh and our hearts are full. I'll pray for us and I'll turn this popping microphone off and we'll sing together as we close.